Please rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm your co-host, Roberta. And I'm Rachel. And before we dive in to the royal news of the week, first follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Also send us a note, info at gallerypodcast.com. We have a lovely listener email coming up. Rachel, it's chilly. We're bundled. I can see that you're bundled in the exact same outfit that I'm wearing. (laughs) I just love when this happens because we don't coordinate. We don't communicate. And somehow we dress the same. Like we, Arnold, you guys, we're wearing matching turtlenecks to this. The turtlenecks are basic, right? But these are striped. It's like a Breton turtleneck. Blue and white. It's like the exact same turtleneck. Is it yours from J. Crew? I think it is. Yeah. And sweatshirts This is also old. Like I dug into my <laughs> closet today for warmth. So it's like, it's not in regular circulation. It just makes me laugh. We are of one brain. It's true. Yes. We have so much to talk about this episode, so much that I didn't even prep anything for this episode tease, but the big spoiler, big news is that we are joined by the one, the only Omid Scobie, author of the brand new book, Endgame, which came out this week. We talked to him the day before Thanksgiving. We are very honored and excited to chat with him again. He's been on the podcast before, obviously. We're also discussing Princess Eugenie. She's been out and about, and she has a podcast that she recently appeared on. We're going to get into that. So much, Roberta. And now it's time for the Weekly Royal Cocktail. First, we always leave time for a royal refreshment. And this week I prepared one and I'm sipping it. Gin, ginger, and pomegranate seeds, which make it really (gasps) festive looking. And I have a nice big ice cube in it. It's so pretty. I always forget about the pomegranate seeds. What a good addition. Doesn't it look so – it looks – it's just like such a nice addition. It's so easy and it looks – very Christmassy, holiday And I I want to make this when I'm home for the holidays in Florida with ginger beer and a hint of lemon and honey, uh. which sounds delicious because it sounds also very festive. And I'm just using ginger ale, which is my go-to drink of choice for airplanes and et cetera. A well-stocked fridge always has ginger ale in it. I totally mm-hmm. agree. How was your Thanksgiving, Roberta? I wish it was hot. I will say that because we're I'm freezing right now. We're in this cold. cold front in the Northeast. So freezing. My Thanksgiving was so good. It was so low key, which was really nice and what I needed after being so sick. And I just ate so much food. How was yours? Yeah, it was so good. I feel like it was totally relaxing. I did want to shout out that I watched this amazing because we always talk about Ted Lasso here. It's just going to be this like royal adjacent conversation always. But did you happen to see that Hannah Waddingham has a special on Apple Plus? This is not planted, but it features cameos from I'm not going to give it away, but a lot of the Ted Lasso cast. Oh, I see. I didn't know it had cameos. I definitely have seen it advertised on Apple TV, but I haven't watched. I may have entered. It's so good. And I may have entered the era of my life where I can thank Kate for this, I guess. But throwing on a holiday Christmas concert or special in the background is just so delightful. And I did that with Hannah's. And I highly recommend to get in the spirit. It was really fun and had so much Ted Lasso energy infused. That's such a good recommendation. I'm going to do it while I wrap Christmas presents. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it was a very chill time. I hope all of our listeners had a great Thanksgiving too. Yes. 
All right. Our listener email this week, which I teased at the top, Donna from Atlanta wrote us a lovely note. She says, Dear Rachel and Roberta, I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years now and just love your coverage of the royal family. My sister-in-law and I are totally royally obsessed, so much so that when we traveled to Las Vegas to see Keith Urban perform, we made sure to catch the Princess Diana exhibit at the Cosmopolitan. Here are some photos. Photo one is a recreation of Diana's wedding gown made of paper, which is hard to believe because it looks so realistic. Photo two, several of Diana's gowns sold at auction. She also has a photo of her her in her warm and wonderful sheep sweater next to one of Diana's, her sister-in-law and her outside the Diana experience. And then they had a few of Princess Catherine's gowns as well. Donna continues, I highly recommend the experience if you happen to be in Vegas. Not expensive, and you get a wine glass with a D on it as a souvenir. Keep up the great work on the show. Love, Donna. We were always curious about this exhibit, Roberta. This reminds me, too, who bought the million-dollar sheep sweater from Sotheby's? I'm so curious. I know. Will we know? I, I would love to know that it's in a museum and that we could go and be as close as we were. Remember they didn't have the case on it when we saw yeah. it because they were doing the shoot? Some other film media was coming in. I and breathed on it. We were like that close. <laughs> I was like, are we allowed to touch it? Why is it not enclosed? I also thought about, um, did you see the news this week about Diana's engagement portrait blouse that's up for sale? Oh. It's the David and Elizabeth Emanuel design that she wore for her portraits. Lord Snowden snapped the portraits and they're expecting it to get 100K. But I feel like we may be surprised based on the sheep sweater. It's so frilly and so 80s and I love it. It has like a big pink bow on the top. It's amazing. We need a royally obsessed auction fund just to, Uh (laughs) right? There's so many items all the time. For the crown too, coming up in January. Yeah. Yeah. And now, this week in royal history. Well, moving on to this week in royal history, we are flashing back to Kate and William's announcement that they were expecting their firstborn child that turned out to be Prince George, who is now 10 years old, if you can believe it. This was on December 3rd, 2012. So much has happened. So much has changed. The palace, of course, confirmed it early. They shared their royal highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, are very pleased to announce that the Duchess of Cambridge is expecting a baby sharing this because the players have changed, of course, but it says the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Cornwall, and Prince Harry and members of both families are delighted with the news. That's their signature line. The reason for the early announcement, though, because Kate was not yet through her first trimester, was that she was admitted to King Edward VII Hospital due to extreme morning sickness. As we remember, she had hyperemesis gravidarum, which meant extreme vomiting, acute symptoms. She was thought to be in the hospital for several days. I wanted to play this clip. Remember, we love the royals when they pop on podcasts. A great segue for the rest of the episode. But Kate stopped by the Happy Mom, Happy Baby pod where she talked with Giovanna Fletcher about her experience with morning sickness. It was fine. I I got very bad morning sickness. So I'm not the happiest of pregnant people. Um, <laughs> have you had it every time? Or just yes, before? unfortunately. Ooh. Lots of people have it far, far worse. But it was definitely a challenge, not just for me, but also for your loved ones around you. And I think that's the thing is being pregnant, having a newborn baby and things like that impacts everybody in, mm. in the family. You know, William didn't feel he could do much to help. And, you know, it's hard for everyone to see you suffering without actually being able to do anything about it. Especially since it's such an amazing, magical time. But then yeah. you're just feeling rotten. Yes, Utterly rotten. I was really sick. I wasn't eating the things I should be eating, but yet 
the body was still able to take all the goodness from my body and to grow new life, which I think is fascinating. It's amazing. Yeah. Like I said, now that happy baby is George at age mm-hmm. 10. I did want to share that the Cambridges, now the Waleses, at the time in 2012 were still in Angsley and they were gearing up for a move to apartment 1A at Kensington Palace, their 20-room abode. So a big, big life transformation transformation for them. And it's, you know, we've recently witnessed another transformation with them moving out of the city. More than anything, it's just the pressure that she was under to announce early, Roberta. Like, I think back to that, that it was the reason was there was so much speculation about her hospital stay and that she was ill with something else that they had to announce it. But Kate and William really didn't want to. I I do know that's kind of the norm to not not share until beyond the first trimester. Mm-hmm. Also, what was interesting is the news of her pregnancy was what lit a fire under, you know, the queen and parliament and government then at the time to change the rule that a boy or girl could be named heir apparent. And that led to ultimately the succession to the Crown Act being shifted in 2015, which meant that Charlotte doesn't get bumped down with the arrival of Prince Louis. I was going to say the hospital stay, it just reminds me of being in the hospital recently for two days and how the royals could never have any kind of illness without the public knowing. It's just so yeah, so wild to think about how how much their lives are public that nothing like illnesses, anything, they can't get away with having privacy around them. I mean, they used to have like the home doctor, right? But that really yeah. shifted. And I think it's it's fascinating how modern times have changed that for them. There was also this announcement at the time that a royal baby is something the whole nation can celebrate. And it just made me think of recent conversations where, you know, these pinnacle moments, how they really draw in crowds and fans and interest in the monarchy. And we're just, you know, as Tina Brown talked about when she recently joined, we're a, a bit of a gap away from that. I think the the royal mint gave away bags of or a bag with a coin in it, a blue bag with a coin in it to everyone born on that day. So there was like a thousand babies born on the same day as George, and they gave that. I think that's a tradition that they do for the heir. So I might be wrong. Fact check me, listeners, please. But I, th- <laughs> I, th- I read that recently. That's amazing. But anyways, fun thing to flash back to. We are expected to see Kate and William this week tomorrow on Thursday when the episode drops. We can't include it this week, but at the Royal Variety performance, they are seeing share, which is really exciting. I love that is share. Exciting. Always listening to the Mamma Mia soundtrack over here, which I know she does a lot of other things, of course, but and other royals. Yeah, she's joining Crown Princess Victoria and Daniel. It'll be at London's Royal Albert Hall. And I also re- was looking back because they did not go in 2022. And I was like, how come? And has, you know, scratching my head, Roberta, where were they? They were at Earthshot in Boston, where we were as well. Oh, makes sense. Makes sense. But they are also pinch hitting. I was going to say they're pinch hitting for Charles because he's going to be giving the opening address at COP28. So that's a big mm, deal. I am mad that we won't get to talk about it this week because it'll feel a little old next week, but that's okay. I'm still excited to see what they wear. Of I course. know. Do you think it'll be Vampire's Wife? I just so I feel like we need something sparkly. That's the signature look always, but they must or have needle something and thread. new. Yeah. yeah. There's a really pretty Beulah London dress that I've been eyeing and I've seen so many British influencers wearing that I'm just curious if we'll see it Ooh. on Kate. You heard it here first. All right, moving on to a few little tidbits of royal news before we get into our Omid Scobie interview. I just wanted to quickly go through these Princess Eugenie updates. So Eugenie last week joined the Table Mares podcast. That's with singer Jessie Ware and her mom, who's a chef. A side note, I just want to say that Royals joining podcasts, like you mentioned with Giovanna Fletcher, it's just so enlightening. One, because I think I discover new podcasts that I end up loving, Table Manners being one of them, White Wine Question Time being another one that Eugenie was on. 
it, they're just happy mom, happy baby. They're just so delightful to And there's like an intimacy too. Like I just feel like the voice, it feels so unfiltered, even though I know there's a wonderful producer like Judy we have behind the scenes that helps clean up any fumbles. It still feels unedited. And it's the discovery of these podcasts. I think that's really fun. And the discovery of things that they, I I think Eugenie's full of fun facts. So we'll get into it, the highlights. One of the things that I thought was fascinating though, they start off the interview with saying that they've made a gluten-free, dairy-free shakshuka to share while they talk on the podcast, which I guess is something they always do is they they talk over a meal. And Eugenie is actually gluten and dairy-free because of Jack, her husband, who was getting really bad migraines for a while and went to a gut specialist. Eugenie said that the gut specialist told her that the gut is the second brain. You know, there's this wave of like really focusing on gut health and I believe in it, digestion. Roberta. Yeah. And so she's actually been doing it in solidarity with him. And I thought that was really sweet. And she said it's, you know, helping him a lot. So that was interesting. But the highlights of their conversation, a few little tidbits that I thought were just fascinating. Eugenie doesn't drink coffee. She loves crisps, aka chips, what we call chips in America prawn cocktail being one of our favorite flavors which is a really interesting one yeah i didn't know that existed i know that this is cute that they always did daily tea with granny i think especially like around the holidays and stuff and it was at 5 p.m for 45 minutes and they had to be on their best behavior they had to ask to be excused from the table eugenie has not watched the crown not at all I have to listen to this in full. I've listened partially, so I'm relying on you. Yeah, she really hasn't at all. She hasn't watched The Crown. I'm just ripping through these. I know this is fast, but I'm just trying to go really quickly through a few of them, and then we'll get into some of the clips. But Eugenie took a cooking course at Leith's, aka Prue Leith's Cookery School, you know, from Great British Bake Off. But she has a few favorite restaurants nearby. Her first date with Jack was at one of those restaurants called Osteria Basilico in Notting Hill. We're just we just need to add these to our London list, Rachel, and then we'll like go back and visit them all. Min Jang is one that they like for Chinese in Kensington. The Pelican Pub, their friends own that in Notting Hill. And then she loves the Soho House mac and cheese, which we definitely Did need we to try. get it when we went? No. We went to Dean Street and I don't know. No, we didn't get it. We didn't get the mac and cheese, but we'll have to go back. Her cocktail of choice is tequila on the rocks with lime and she talked a little bit about the royals. She talked about her uncle, King Charles, and Prince William, and the future of the monarchy. Here's a clip from that. As you, as the royal family, uh, as more young, do you think you are modernising? Do you think you're, I mean, like you've said, I wouldn't send my children to boarding school till they're 13. So do you think there is changes in attitudes and it's becoming more modern? Well, um, I think with each change of monarch, and it's less about modernizing and more about um, becoming one with what what the monarch what, what the monarch believes in. Um, and I think my uncle and my cousin are amazing examples of that for the future. And the way they've been brought up and the what they believe in, it's not like they're thinking, "Oh God, we're gonna." modernize it it's, no, just, it's just they they're moving with their things. belief they're, systems yeah. are what the world believes yeah. in it is fascinating roberta to hear them talk about that just because a she's totally put on the spot right it doesn't yeah. sound like they edited much out of that and b the word modern is something we throw around a lot with the monarchy but it isn't something as you're going through it that you think of you're not like, am I modern today? Or <laughs> I know. I know it is really nice. And she shouts out, you know, especially Earthshot, especially Charles has always been kind of at the 
forefront of food conservation. So I thought that that was really interesting. That was really the only, there were a few mentions of granny and um, what they learned from granny, but really that was it as far as family's concerned. And she, of course, talks about, you know, raising Augie and Ernie, which was very sweet. And also her and Jack getting food delivery to Kensington Palace. I thought this was so enlightening. So I'm going to play one more clip from the pod. So last night we got a curry, which I never do. I never eat them. Jack and I were literally sitting for an hour on delivery, like, what on earth does this mean? Eventually, we... (laughs) How do they get into Kensington Palace, or do they have to go through... We just ring down and we say, there's a delivery coming, and then we'll get in our pyjamas and drive down and go and pick it up. They won't bring it to you. Is it that much of a schlep? Bloody hell. No, we could walk, but I don't want to be in my pyjamas... You know, outside. But they don't bring it to you. No. Oh, God, I would never. I think that's so funny, though. I love Jesse's mom. I know. I know. It's a definitely, it's added to my list. Table Manners is now on weekly She rotation. asks the right questions. Like, this she is what totally I want to know. Does. I just want the mechanics of this because I don't understand. And I think William has talked about delivery before on a different podcast or radio show. And it's just so fascinating. It's like, how do you do these super basic things that... Why is it so interesting? It is. It is so interesting, and I don't know why. But all right, one more Eugenie mention before we move on. They were pictured at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. They were on a little date night, but the picture is with Ginger Spice, which made me smile. Naomi Campbell, Orlando Bloom was also there. It's just funny, like, the circles they run in. I don't know. I always find it fascinating. Jerry Hallowell Horner is real name ginger spice obviously her husband is i think very involved with the grand prix in formula one and we obviously saw harry and megan at the katie perry residency concert so it's just fascinating because we know that close relationship with eugenie and harry as well and then my only thought rachel i don't know if you thought this too naomi campbell and ginger spice what is their secret to perfect skin because it's really blowing me away yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like 2024 is the year too. Isn't what are they talking about the trend with skin? It's like no, well, you were talking about it, no makeup, right? Yeah, no makeup. I, but ginger spice, like I'm blown away. I just feel like I was so in love with the Spice Girls. They probably go to so Sarah long Chapman. ago. <laughs> oh, for the face gym. Is that face gym? Yeah. She's like got the facial massage techniques and just that's where yeah. Megan loves. It's like they, she is just mind blowing. Ugh. But I do think we need like some sort of diagram of Katy Perry's overlap just to reference on on demand. <laughs> <laughs> Royal overlap. That's a good idea. Okay. Well, we're going to tee up this interview with Omid, which is very exciting. But we wanted to just touch on some revelations. We obviously mentioned we recorded before Thanksgiving. There were just a few details from the book that we didn't get to in our conversation with him due to time constraints quickly running through those. Kate and Megan, this was one of the bigger ones that caught my eye. I know caught your eye, Roberta. The news says that they were actually encouraged to dress like Diana. And so when we see that, Omid calls it Diana cosplay. It's how the palace is shamelessly leveraging Diana's popularity and asking them to replicate her style so that some of her shine rubs off on them. And they even, the palace goes so far as to get Harry and William sign off on this before their wives would step out with those subtle nods or overt nods to Diana. How does that make you feel, Roberta? I'm just really curious about your thoughts. I feel like there was there was a specific period in time where we saw so many outfits that looked like Diana. And I remember the articles with all the side-by-side pictures, like particularly Kate and Polka Dots last year. I think that that was such a thing. And so it is weird to me that they, I don't know that this was all kind of 
I, I thought it was just a little bit of a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, I think that the ties to the past always feel so touching. Like when we see it, we yeah. do like that, those sartorial nods. But I also feel like now knowing that it's a little bit of a marketing stunt and so aggressively staged feels a little bit exactly. icky. Because also it's like, are Megan and Kate willing participants? Is this what they actually want to wear? And I don't know. It just feels a little curious. I mean, even even like in addition, because I mentioned Kate and the polka dots, but even Megan and purple and red, like was yep. that part of this? It just makes me question. No, I think outfit. it was because it was another side by side. Yeah. I mean, Beth and Holt, I, I read an interview where she described it and she's obviously been on the podcast and we adore her, is that talks about how Kate in particular, because her book is about Kate, talks about how they work to modernize what was a Diana style. And Diana mm. did touch every element of fashion throughout her True. tenure. So it's hard to avoid overlap, but it is interesting. Also, we got this from Omid. We always talk about on the podcast, the TIG 2.0. And one of his book sources says that Megan is working, quote, on something more accessible, something rooted in her love of details, curating, hosting, life's simple pleasures, and family. This was in an interview that Omid gave. He talked about how the project has changed about five times in the duration of Omid working on Endgame. He had also, like many, envisioned that she would pop back with something like the TIG or like Goop, but was told whatever Megan is working on won't be about selling products. Hmm. This throws me for a loop, Roberta. Won't be about selling products? But then it covers such a wide swath of things like curating, hosting, simple pleasures, details. Like, I don't understand how it could be so influencery without affiliate links like I just don't know why you would do that I don't know, I know. I'm just curious I know I'm I, I, a lot of headlines are, are going, running rampant with comparing her like is she going to try to be the next Martha Stewart because I think that hosting yeah. word jars people but we really don't know like a big media brand I think that would be fascinating if she was going to go into media but we'll see yeah or do more work like I, there's an intersection he did say between business and philanthropy so I wonder if it'll be more of like mm-hmm. the cookbook type projects that she did when she was a royal we'll see we'll see but I'm on the edge of my seat. So one of the things that I thought was interesting that bubbled up during Omid's press circuit is just that Camilla thanked Piers Morgan for all of his attacks on Meghan Markle. That's what Endgame claims. Of course, these are all due to royal sources. So I don't know. It's just awful to think about that she would be thanking him when he was so vitriolic and hateful and Ugh, it just makes my skin crawl. And then also this other little tidbit that the palace staff really gave Megan a hard time during the wedding planning phase, which is where all of these Duchess difficult headlines came from. And it was just all due to the fact that she wouldn't just agree, yes, fruitcake's fine. Yes, those flowers are fine. Like she really wanted to put her specific touch on her own wedding. And I have trouble seeing why they would find that so difficult. So I don't know. That was just my two two little headlines I came across I wanted to bring up. Yeah. All right. I'm going to tack on one more detail before we get into the interview. This tiny, tiny piece where it's the mention that Kate shivers or has shivered when Megan's name is brought up. It <laughs> talks about how she jokingly did it. And I don't know. I have to say, to give Kate the benefit of the doubt, A lot has come out that has been pretty difficult for them in the last couple of years. Their lives are totally out, and I think their reputation has suffered as a result of it. So if that is her lighthearted way of responding to the drama, like kind of the new never complain, never explain, it's very comical, but it made me laugh when I saw that. I don't know. A little faux shiver. Like a joke shiver, because people are probably bringing it up left and right. I mean, Kate and William are headlines nonstop as a result of these 
conversations. Not to say that they, you know, two things can be true. They definitely played the game as well, but it's it's kind we of, of course love Megan, but I do think it's really funny to picture Kate shivering whenever. Yeah, this <laughs> level of detail up. from Omid is is fascinating <laughs> always. And on that note, we are going to queue up the interview, and I just want to add, everyone should read the book. It's worth it. Read it in full, just like Spare. You got to read the whole thing. Don't headline here. Agreed. Roros, we're welcoming a familiar face back to the podcast this week. Omid Scobie, journalist, podcaster, and author of Finding Freedom, is here with us. His newest book, Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival, is out this week. We are so excited. We last saw Omid in London in May during King Charles's coronation weekend, and so much has changed since. So welcome back, Omid. Hi, guys. How are you both doing? Doing well. Where are you joining us from? Because your background is sunny and gorgeous. Yeah, not not Britain. Um, I'm in the US. <laughs> I'm in California at the moment. So slight change of scene. We're just getting ready to go on this press tour for the book. So Wonderful. That's so exciting. Well, we're diving in with a very small question, Omid. What can Charles do to save the monarchy? Is that starting off too strong for you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just, we wanted to talk about within the book, we love how you frame him as the palate cleanser king almost. He has big shoes mm. to fill, has his own ideas, but also can't pull on the threads of change too, too fast, which puts him in a harder position. So we'd love to get your take on what you do think he can do within those restrictions. Mm. Well, Charles is in a very tough position because... As as you point out, I say in the book that he's sort of in a precarious spot where if he kind of pulls on the threads of change too much, it unravels the entire tapestry of the monarchy. But at the same time, like radical modernization is needed in places. And we also have no time for sort of like a softly, softly approach to some of the topics. To preface all of this, it's been, you know, a year since he took on the job and he has navigated it pretty well you know there's not much to fault there he steered the ship in the right direction they're huge shoes to fill but at the same time there have been small moments of opportunity where I've perhaps been a little disappointed that the most hasn't been made of a situation I'd look at the the visit to Kenya as a prime example we've obviously heard Charles in the past talk about the atrocities of slavery in very abstract terms, the last time would have been in the visit to Barbados when they became a fully independent country. I hope that in Kenya, we would have seen him take that one step further rather than repeat the same words or, or a remix of those words once again, because the feedback that we get from the countries affected by this horrendous history have clearly made, have made it very clear that they want more than that. You know, the predominantly black and brown Commonwealth that was devastated by the history of slavery before becoming part of the British Empire, before becoming the Commonwealth as it is today. We're all looking for those conversations, for those, uh, for the accountability. And, and the example has been set. I look at King Willem in the Netherlands, who's done a fantastic job of navigating this very dilemma, because I do understand that with an apology also comes questions of, well, are you then admitting that everything that the monarchy is today, the wealth, the fortune, the scale, is largely down to this horrible history? And if so, what are you going to do about it? So I realise it takes them into a very uncomfortable place. But you look at King Willem in the Netherlands, who apologized on behalf of his ancestors very publicly less than a year ago, spoke 
publicly and eloquently about it, not just to the nation, but to the world, and then addressed a point plan of how they were going to move forward tackling this topic, money going into research projects that would delve into some of the finer details about the family's involvement and what that impact has been on minority communities in the Netherlands today, how that's impact, impacted racism in, in the Netherlands today. I think these are really important things, especially as a, as, a, as a leader, as a head of state, to really think about if one cares for a nation, for, for, for a commonwealth. And so these, these abstract terms, these platitudes aren't doing enough. And I think that that's an area in which Charles can be bold, can create a legacy for himself because Otherwise, you know, we've seen him referred to as the caretaker king in the Times, and so many of the sources I spoke to talked to him, talked to me about him being the bridge to the true successor. And you know, he's already achieved so much as the Prince of Wales that is his legacy in many ways. But it would be nice to see him put his flag in the ground for something as the monarch as well in a relatively short reign. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We were struck by the fact, too, that King Charles, who you write in Endgame, is known to be more emotional, he's more open-hearted, that he hasn't done much to reconcile with Prince Harry. Why do you think that is? That totally goes against his personality, it seems like. It's interesting because I think that the royal family do have this famous uh, desire to always want to sweep things under the rug or bury their heads under the sand. And even today, when you look at the, the, the kind of conversation and that slightly warmer line of communication between Harry and William that stands now, you know, we most recently heard about it for the phone call for his birthday, there still hasn't actually been a big conversation about the events that unfolded during the Sussexes' time as working members of the royal family. And as I say in the book, I think that whilst Charles is a man of many admirable qualities, his inability to convene and command his family at the most testing times for the institution have also said a lot about his abilities as a leader, not just as the pillar of a family or, or, or the patriarch, but also as uh, the head of states. And, and so with this book, which is very much a kind of step back general assessment of the entire institution and the, and the members within it, one has to look at all of these things to kind of paint a real picture of, of who these individuals are, rather than the kind of varnished versions that were often presented with in the pages of some of the British newspapers. What do you make of that recent report of the phone call between Prince Harry and his dad? Do you think there's any stock in that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the things that was really important to me when writing this book was, although Harry and Meghan are very much not the part of the future of the royal family, they're technically irrelevant to it at this point, simply for not being working members of the firm. I wanted to still look at the events and experiences that impacted their lives, but also spoke to bigger issues. But I, And I also wanted to follow on from where Spare leaves off, which was, you know, in January, we saw and heard Harry in interviews talking about his desire for conversations and accountability and maybe even apologies um, mm -hmm. and see where that had got him beyond the release of the book. And so I was pleased to hear that at the very least, there had been these short and some semi-regular phone conversations with Charles along the way, not just tied into sort of the bigger moments such as the Queen's death, but also just 
in private between the two of them, where although the issues weren't discussed, there was an eagerness on both sides to still keep that line of communication. Ultimately, it's a father and son that still love each other. There's still warmth there, but there's also been a huge amount of uh, upsets and misunderstanding and hurts that has yet to be addressed. And so can you really then move forward with a healthy relationship or any kind of relationship beyond that? Or is that why we're stuck in this position of a sort of stalemate situation where neither are really able to move forward because it requires both to put in the effort, not just one. It does feel like a stalemate. You're totally right. Another thing that stood out to us within your book, and this is something we've been noticing a ton within the podcast we've been talking about a lot, Roberta and I, is how it feels like the Royal Playbook has been tossed out in recent months with engagement overlap. What is the impetus behind this? What is going on behind the scenes with this sort of almost like royal whiplash where the events are happening. Earthshot kind of got lost in the shuffle because we had the opening of Parliament. It's, it's, a, it's a lot going on, and that wasn't the norm previously. It's so interesting that you point that out because really you would expect that with this leaner lineup of working royals that everyone has their space, that everyone has their, their opportune moment for their work to stand front and centre. And we have seen this overlap. And, and what I've started to see emerge since Charles became king was the fact that every senior royal seems to be operating in their own silo, that for as much as we hear about stories or briefings from the palace that Charles and William are in lockstep with one another, they couldn't be further apart. In fact, I see the gap widening between father and son as the months go by, you know, and, and, and that hasn't really been hidden when you look at it. You know, some of the comments that William's made or some of the briefings that's come out from Kensington Palace just in the past year and a half alone, you know, after the coronation, we heard from... KP that, you know, William will do it his own way and it will be much smaller and cost effective. And, you know, when he was in Singapore recently, not only was the, the trip somewhat overshadowing work that was happening with his father at home, he also made the, the statement that his work would have much more impact than those in the basically in the family who have just been highlighting causes over the years. So there does seem to be this sort of very different agendas in every camp. And I think that that's the one thing that we never saw exhibited by the Queen, who for 70 years on the throne never made it about herself, always made it about the institution and, and the duty to the, the crown. And there was never a sort of in the weeds focus on press coverage or polling or all the rest of it, which I, I think that we see with particularly with Charles and William, this kind of like granular obsession with granular level obsession with what the media is saying and, and, and how things look. And, and, and it's seen much overlap in terms of like different agendas, clashing schedules and all the rest of it. I'm surprised still at this point, we've yet to see Charles and William really side by side in anything when when you really think of it as a business, the man who took over from the most popular woman in, in Great Britain and probably certainly in top tens around the world, the Queen passed away, replaced by a man who is certainly not even a fraction popular as her, doesn't have the support from perhaps the more popular members of the family that could boost him on the main stage as well. I find that really interesting because 
are, is everyone working to the same unified goal or is this now all about personal agendas and achievements and and does that then reflect what the royal family was all about you know this was once a family who was the perfect example of traditional british family values that upheld a certain line of ethics and morals and and, and so on and i sometimes look at the behaviors and actions that we've seen displayed over the recent years and i don't see that aligning with what the original kind of image of the firm was supposed to be yeah, it's felt it's definitely felt a little chaotic lately is yeah. our observation. Yeah. Well, you write in Endgame, and this was fascinating to us, that Prince Edward might be one of the only senior royal family members that has Prince Harry's back in addition to his cousin Eugenie. And we want to know why you think that is. I mean, we're struck by the fact that they're all the youngest siblings, but it's got to be more than that. Yeah, I mean, I would say that despite hearing from sources that Edward was sympathetic towards what the Sussexes went through and quite concerned about them at times, there's no evidence of him taking it any further than that. You know, this is also a family that has to constantly think about themselves in this sort of very bizarre situation that they're all in, mixing family with with the business and, and the politics that come with that. But it was interesting to me to, to see that it wasn't sort of universally felt across the entire family that these two that are now in California are, are the worst things on earth and deserved everything that they got. That within that, there were certain individuals who have perhaps experienced their own smaller prejudices or troubles within the institution be it through lack of hierarchy either within the family or within the, the line of succession and, and all that comes with that. Again, it just comes down to, you know, a lot of people will ask, like, why are Harry and Meghan even in my book? Like, they're not part of the future of the royal family. They're irrelevant to that story. But their stories and their experiences still serve as great examples. And ultimately, this is a study in how human beings were treated within this institution that claims to uphold a certain set of ethics and values that I don't believe are always actually the case. I mean, and I would argue to those people who say that, that the Sussexes story is why you're writing this book. I mean, it's one of the biggest missteps the monarchy has taken in the recent history. So I would say that to the critics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and you do also, you know, you do talk about the Sussexes' missteps as well within this book when it comes to carving out that post-royal path. How do you see and know that they're kind of not connected in terms of what's ahead in ter- with the future of the monarchy, but how do you expect their post-royal roles to proceed? Yeah, I think we see Harry and Meghan now in a place that they probably wished that they were in much earlier, which is having broken away from the stories that they wanted to tell when stepping away from the firm. And I would imagine that the desire to be heard and share one side of the story would have been very different on day one to fast forward to the start of 2023 with the release of a memoir. You know, there's a lot of lot happens between that time. And so from everyone that I spoke to in their orbit, it felt that they were both really keen to just like move on beyond that period of time. And I think certainly in Meghan's case, like haven't we already seen that happening over the past year? I know that her team said that it was Archie's birthday was a reason that she didn't come to the coronation, but only took a few conversations with people around her to 
kind of get an understanding that there was more to it than that, that this was also someone that just didn't want to get dragged back into the hoopla and the hysteria that comes every time she sets foot in the country or, or near the royal family. You know, the, the experiences that they they went through just in those few weeks around the Queen's death were like a reminder to them that they had made the right decision in, in stepping away. So their life of like full autonomy over here in, in California seems to be working out really well for them. I think where there have been moments where I've questioned, you know, what is it that they're doing is been perhaps in the earlier days of the foundation where it was a lot of highlighting, a lot of talking and small things here and there. But given the grand ambitions we knew they had, it took a while to really understand what Archwell Foundation actually stood for. And so, you know, to be able to write now in the book about their plans to sort of have mental health as like the pillar throughout the work, and then three things that sort of branch off from that, that's then a clear focus. And then that's the beginning of what could hopefully be a great legacy for them. But so much of it is in their hands now. There's really no one to blame other than themselves at this point for anything that works well or doesn't work well. So I'm really curious to see how that will look then, especially for Meghan, who we know has great ideas and was doing great things before the Royals, but has kind of been hampered by just all the, the, the noise that comes with the life that she now lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was exciting to see her on the variety red carpet so recently. It just felt really natural and, and just, you know, she hinted at those upcoming projects too. Totally. Well, just seeing her kind of on a red carpet at a Hollywood event around people, like-minded people in her own industry that she's, you know, achieved a lot in, you know, Suits still like killing it on Netflix. Like We're on our second rewatch right here and it's so good. <laughs> and it's literally all anyone can talk about over here. If you sit in meetings with anyone about TV projects or anything like that, it's like the, the success of Suits and now it's just sort of blowing everything else on the platform out of the water. Why is it so good, Omid? Why is that show so good? Is it, I mean, it's Megan, but Harvey, it's just amazing. You know, I, I've got to admit something. Yes, please. I have only watched a few episodes of Suits <gasps> in my life. <laughs> Scandal. <laughs> you listen, I, I enjoyed those few episodes, but it's yes. on my list of shows that like I'll watch when I retire, along with like yes. The West Wing, Sopranos, oh, West, West and Wing a few is on other things too. that I just never got around to watching that I missed at the time. But yeah, <laughs> so I can't tell you, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Omid, you, you've covered the royals for over a decade. You have so many sources in the book. Was there anything that surprised you during your research for Endgame? I think it was like surprise slash satisfaction to be able to piece together stories that I've either covered in part in the past before or didn't have the full information on or we had heard some about from Harry or things that I perhaps was a bit nervous about reporting before because I didn't want to get in trouble with anyone or be excluded from an event or, or whatever. So to be able to piece together all of those in the book, you know, and I think one of the biggest ones, or at least I appreciated being able to have the chance to put together was the story of the rumours around William and Kate's fallout with Rose Hambry. And that obviously started on the pages of the Sun newspaper and took on a life of its own, which, as I say in the book, rumours are BS until proven otherwise and not worth giving any oxygen to. 
but anatomizing that rumor and the way in which it was handled by the the palace, the goings on within the institution that helps shield a senior member of the family, but also what goes into those efforts with the press and who suffers as a consequence. And as we see in the in the book, and I, I don't want to give it all away, but probably it will be out there at this point anyway. <laughs> you know, we see I was writing Finding Freedom at the time. So I had a great relationship with the team at KP at the time. And I saw the panic that came when those rumors started to take on a life of the zone and ended up on the front page of tabloids in America and all the rest of it. And the efforts that went in, I re- recall the day in the in which I write about in the book where, you know, Williams head of comms comes to me and is like, well, have you ever thought about giving Finding Freedom to this like sketchy tabloid journalist um, for the exclusive? He'll help you promote it. This is the same journalist that had written the first story about the Rose Hanbury fallouts. And so I started to see, okay, I see how you're having to navigate this because I knew that he had had to confront William about it and have conversations about it within. I talk about in the book his stress at the time But then I also saw the shift after I didn't want to go down that path to suddenly this journalist having stories out of nowhere, it seems, for the first time about Harry and Meghan. And they were negative ones and ones that people at Kensington Palace would have had access to. We then later learned and have seen later accusations about the partner of this head of communications being accused of selling stories to that same journalist at The Sun that were tied to, to Meghan and Harry. And then we later, as I talk about in the book, the moments where Harry confronts not only Palisades about it, but talks to his brother about this very incident at the Sandringham summit to be told by William, oh, we're worried about that too. But to then hear nothing afterwards and find out that William has now promoted this individual to his private secretary. And that when Harry takes this higher up within the institution, and says maybe we should look into legal action against the Sun because potentially a public official could be being corrupted here, um, or at least that's how he perceived the situation. The response was stand down or pay the price. A few weeks later, his finances are taken away. So to not hear that story in full is a disservice to understanding the full fallout of Harry and Meghan and their struggles within the institution. Because often we get so swept up in the, oh, she wanted air fresheners or sent emails at this time of it all, that we forget that there were much darker things going on that could never have been repaired, that had to be walked away from. Yeah, wow. Another, you know, one of the biggest struggles that Meghan and Harry point to, of course, um, in their Oprah interview is the person who raised concerns over the skin color of Meghan and Harry's unborn baby, the royal racist. I'm putting that in quotes because they obviously don't say that. But you do provide some extra clarity in the book and no spoilers again on this part. But without going so far as to name names, you provide a little bit of clarity in Endgame about this. There's letters between Charles and Meghan post Oprah interview. Can you elaborate a bit more on that element, uh, that chapter of the book? Yeah, obviously, like like everyone, that had an interest in this story because it felt like it was unfinished. You know, we heard Harry and Meghan bring up this really serious allegation in the Oprah interview, 
And then it was never mentioned again. It never came up in the Netflix series. It never came up in Spare. And I was curious to know why. And, you know, we'd already seen a story in The Telegraph sort of vaguely worded about letters between Charles and Meghan. We didn't know much about what was in them. And so to learn then that Meghan and Charles had spoken about the two family members who were at the centre of this, Firstly, I was surprised that it was two. I always thought it was one. That was how it was it was phrased initially or came across early. But secondly, that the conversation between Meghan and Charles was even happening, that although they didn't see eye to eye on how they perceived those words being used within the family, that they were able to at least hear each other on the matter. To me, that's probably the, the biggest moment of like maturity that we've really had in any of these quarrels and and I then understood why Harry and Meghan didn't want to bring it up again because it felt like it had been addressed with the head of the family and although they weren't able to continue those conversations with other parties who were not interested in talking about this stuff it was addressed and dealt with doesn't mean that there isn't a problem within the institution I mean the fact that the conversations were had in the first place is still still an issue to this day, but I understand now why they they didn't bring it up again. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Omid, we're sensitive to your time. We're going to ask one more question and then a quick follow-up, but I just wanted to get your sense because you do touch on one of the bigger problems for the monarchy as we enter the Carolean era, the lack of events that capitalize on the royal spectacle. The coronation was likely the last one to occur for a long time. So how does the monarchy keep its public engaged with all these kind of fractures at the seams? Yeah, we're sort of entering this cold winter now, a long one, where potentially there are no big ticket items for some time. And, you know, it felt like maybe we had already had too much, but by the time we reached Trooping the Colour after the coronation, it felt like there was some royal fatigue across the country. You know, the, I even noticed the crowds outside Buckingham Palace just weren't as sort of thick and excited as, as they normally are. It was much less people there. I think now it's like it's, it's embracing the modern changes that the royal family could make and making those your main attractions to being able to kind of keep up with the rapidly advancing pace of our world and, and, and the country um, in a way that is so impressive that we are marvelling at that rather than a parade. So I think that there doesn't need to be theatrics and and sort of like main stage moments to keep all eyes on the family. But I think at the same time, the pressure is now really on them to deliver on some of these issues that have been lingering over them for many years. And so perhaps think more about the actual purpose of the crown rather than one's own agenda. And, you know, I think royal commentators and experts and journalists use the term optics so bloody often. But I don't <laughs> think this is a family that really is thinking about optics anymore because time and time again, they're just not there. And I think partly the reason for that is there does need to be a change in the teams around the members of the royal family. There needs to be people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different ethnic backgrounds, from just new voices in the room that can have a real impact on the steps made by the firm moving forwards. We're ending on a really fun one. 
The Crown. Have you watched season six yet? What's your take? I did not expect for... (laughs) (laughs) There was so much I didn't expect. Listen, I thought it was very interesting that there was this um, kind of very soft-handed treatment of Charles's side of the story in, in this first half of the series because, in effect, it felt very kind to the royal family, considering the last couple seasons have been quite brutal. I don't know if that was intentional. I'm really curious to see how the second half of the season goes on. As much as I loved some of the earlier seasons, I will say I did struggle with some of these episodes. But at the same time, yeah. I'm very aware that I also have complete royal fatigue right now. <laughs> and maybe it's yes, just sure. not the right time sure. in my life to be watching The Crown. <laughs> yeah, digging in. I know, I know. Well, we're so honored that you took the time with us and congrats on the book. It's really a fantastic read and and one to take your time with as well. No, thank you. I'm, cl- I'm glad you guys read it and thanks for supporting. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. It was so nice to have Omid back on the pod. And now before we adjourn our highs and lows of the week, my low is just this headline from The Guardian. A new report came out that Charles is wrongfully using dead people's money for his own royal properties. So it's this interesting little tidbit where in the duchies of Lancaster and... Cornwall. When you die without a will the ne- or a next of kin, the money goes to the king, which is supposed to go to charity, but some has been going to upgrade royal properties. Not a good look for the king. Ooh, that's crazy. Milo is this <laughs> last night, I feel like it broke basically yesterday afternoon, that there's a page in the Dutch translation of Endgame, Omid's book, as we just talked about, that reveals the identity of the royal racist. How does this happen, Roberta? How? I just have so many questions. Also, isn't there two royal races? Because Oman said that in letters between Meghan and Charles, two people's names were written down. Yes. And supposedly the Dutch translation only names one. I will admit that I (laughs) did go into the weeds via Twitter or X to kind of do some translations. And if you really go and dig, you can find that page because it is out there. Everything's on the internet. But Omid said he wrote and edited the English version. There's never been a version that I've produced that has names in it, but I just don't, I don't Mm. understand. I really don't get it. Was it removed at the last minute because of the legal team? Like, I have no idea. Or like, were those pages doctored? Like, you just never know. You just never know. Yeah, it's really curious. These translations get out of control, like with Spare. They really do. My high this week is... On the flip side, the jokey side of King Charles, I love this. It's two weeks old, but the clip, it must be going viral because I just recently watched it on social media. And it's during a reception at Buckingham Palace to recognize and honor the UK's humanitarians. Charles is talking with his long-term friend, Jon Snow. Yes, not that Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) But they're joking about his title, and it's just a cute little quip. So here it is. I'm so thrilled. One of us has become king. (laughs) (laughs) Is one allowed to say that? Of course you can. I've known you all these years. Years. Is one allowed to say that? I thought that was a very polite way of asking if you can joke in front of the king. That is really cute. I love that. All right, my high ending on a fictional note, The Crown, part two, December 14th. It's coming so soon, Roberta. And we got some new teaser picks from the second part. Ed McVeigh and Kate Bellamy are reenacting the fashion show moment at St. Andrews when Kate suddenly caught William's eye in that see-through dress. 
I'm just curious, is this going to be super steamy? I kind of hope so. I feel like it's going to be a total 180 from part one. What do you what do you think? I my job was on the floor when I saw the recreation of these runway pics. I don't know why. I think it's just so the attention to detail from the crown is just so staggering. Like you and I even talked about the Camilla pictures. Yeah, there's a photo of Charles and Camilla's wedding from 2005. Olivia Williams's exact replica. It is wild. I can't wait for part two. That's my high. I can't wait either. Oh my gosh. It's going to be a roller coaster again. All right. Just a reminder before we close, leave us a royal review and rating of five stars. If you have time, we would love that. The review of the week is from Spare Sister. This person writes, Prince Charles' birthday presents. I'd love to know more about Princess Elizabeth's statement that Prince Charles received so many gifts at his birth that she wanted to share them with other babies born that day, week, or month. My sister was one of those babies, and although my mother told me the story several times, it never ended with my sister receiving a gift. Did that actually happen? Thank you. Okay, I do feel like our producer Judy should like pump in some investigative music while we go sleuth this out. Did you sleuth it out, Roberta? I did sleuth it out, and I found out that this did actually happen. So it's fascinating. I mentioned earlier in the episode with History that they gave out a little bag with a silver coin for George's birth. Well, it just so happens that they did this in November of 1948 for Prince Charles's birth. It was actually from the Ministry of Food. They... Buckingham Palace suggested the idea of a food gift parcel for mothers and babies born on the same day as the royal prince. A reply was received from Buckingham Palace stating Her Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth thinks this is an excellent idea and desires me to ask you to go ahead with it. So they sent out food gift parcels. The only catch is that there were a thousand more babies born on the same day as Charles than they originally expected. So it took them a really long time to get all these parcels out. I think the last one was delivered like February of the of the next year. But the parcels contained honey, marmalade, soap, butter, dried eggs, and even meat products like bacon and beef. So I'm sorry that you, her sister didn't receive one, but it looks like this really happened. But also, was the queen talking, or I guess Princess Elizabeth, talking about gifts that Charles was sent as well that she wanted to distribute? So I didn't find anything about that. But if he was gifted food gifts, maybe they redistributed them. This was coming from the food (laughs) ministry. So I think that they just wanted to send everyone who was born on the same day something special. Really interesting, though. Well, I think Spare's sister needs to write a note to Buckingham Palace and inquire further. Yes. Thank you for the review. Five stars is so kind. So, so kind. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. And till next week, God God save save the pod. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.